Well, I want to begin our time this morning by telling you to do something I've never told you to do before. Let's open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. <laughs> Can't use that joke too many times, but we're just turning a corner here as we turn the page through Matthew's gospel. Chapter 10, we come to chapter 10, a special chapter in that it records the second of these five major sermons or discourses Jesus gave that Matthew records. And what we have here in the second one is Jesus sending out the 12 to preach, the commissioning of the 12. Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the first, the greatest discourse in Matthew's gospel. Here's the next one, the sending of the 12. But don't think that these are trivial instructions, like, you know, don't forget to pack a toothbrush. Jesus gives essential equipping for their message and their mission, all the while addressing the number one obstacle they're going to face which is fear. Jesus sets their expectations while assuring them that God will be with them. And these instructions have a definite historical setting. They're obviously most applicable to the 12 for that first mission. But as we'll find, these instructions in this whole chapter prove quite timeless insofar as our mission and our message overlaps with theirs, because we too are Christ's disciples, and we too have been commissioned on our own mission to reach the lost. So all that and more is to come here in Matthew chapter 10. We begin today, though, with the introduction, the setup to this discourse, verses 1 through 4. This gives a a brief overview of the mission and really the first missionaries. For the first time in Matthew's gospel, we are finally formally introduced to this group known as the 12, the 12 main disciples of Jesus. They've been around, but here we get to know them. We are not to worship or venerate the 12, but we should appreciate their significance. As Ephesians 2:20 says, Christ is the cornerstone of the church, but the 12, the apostles, they are the foundation. The Lord uses these men to be the ground level foundation of his church. And by their oral and written testimony of the risen Christ, Those disciples made many other disciples who in turn made many more disciples and on and on it went down through church history. And here we are today, some 2,000 years later, spiritually descended from them. All glory goes back to the fountainhead, Christ, but he used these 12 in a special way, which we will begin to learn about this morning as we see how it relates to our own discipleship. We don't have a a lot of time on a communion Sunday, so let's just jump in. Let's read this passage to start with, Matthew 10, verses 1 through 4, the introduction. It says this, Matthew 10, 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew's brother. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Now, real quick, I'll remind you of the context where we are. Matthew chapter 9 ended with this summary statement of Christ's ministry so far. What has he been up to so far? He has been traveling through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness. 
And so far, Jesus has been acting alone. He's doing all the teaching. He's doing all the healing. The disciples are around, but they kind of seem like they're along for the ride. They appear to be merely observers. But this is finally about to change. So far through this whole gospel, you might be wondering, like, what, what's the point of these disciples? What's their function? Why does Jesus keep them around? Because they don't seem to do very much. And they often seem just as spiritually uninformed as the crowds. When Jesus teaches, they sit down to listen like everyone else. And when Jesus heals, they stand back to watch like everyone else. Like, so why are they here? The 12 already exists as a group at this point. They already are the 12. But did, did Jesus recruit them as bodyguards? Are they just trying to run crowd control, keep people away from him? Are they merely his servants? Like when Jesus works, they pass out the bread, they collect the leftovers and nothing more. What well, is so far true that the disciples have been hearers of the word and not doers as much, but they've not quite been idle. Rather, what we've witnessed so far is their training stage. Because these men, after being called, they need instruction and spiritual wisdom and godly character which they are receiving from the teaching of the Lord and also by observing his example. And as these 12 men follow Jesus around, it would be wrong to say they're doing nothing. Rather, you should say they're attending class. School is in session and they're in class. That's what's been going on. Now, granted, they're obviously not in a classroom, but I I would argue that no greater school of spiritual formation has ever existed than just following Jesus around in person for the better part of three years. And Jesus enrolled these men because he had big plans for them. One day, they would become the teachers. They would transition from disciples, which means those who learn, to apostles, meaning those who are sent And it is the beginning of that transition that we start to learn about in our text for this morning. This is the 12 starting to turn from disciples into apostles. So chapter 9 ends with Christ's compassion for the lost. He sees the lost sheep without a shepherd. He desires to reach them, but personally, there's more people than he can reach while he's on earth. If only workers could be multiplied then others could be sent out to reach more lost sheep. Well, with this, at the end of chapter 9, Jesus turns to his disciples, and finally he begins to enlist them, to press them into service. No longer on the sidelines learning. It's time to get in the game. And so back at chapter 9, verse 37, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And finally, it's time for the disciples to do something. Now, we learned last time their first order is to pray. To pray that God would raise up and send out workers into his harvest. Jesus knows prayer is one of the most effective ways God conforms our desires to his And praying for the lost would start to enlarge the disciples' hearts for the lost. It would convict them that maybe they should be the ones to go out and reach the lost. Indeed, you too should sense the inconsistency with being willing to pray for your lost loved one, but being unwilling to share the gospel with them. If your prayers are earnest, 
you can trust that the Spirit will convict you that maybe you should be the one to speak. But it's not surprising, <clears throat> not surprising that immediately after this commission to pray for the lost, that Jesus makes it explicit. He is also going to commission the 12 to, to be the ones to get out there and reach the lost. And so here we have Matthew 10. It is time for the disciples to move beyond being mere hearers of the word and start to become more doers of the word. This text represents their first mission, first short-term missions trip. And while it has some differences from the mission given to the church at large, there's so much still we can learn for our own mission today, the mission the Lord has given to the church at large. And so we're going to begin doing that this morning. We have verses 1 through 4. Verse 5 is where the meat starts, the, the meat of Christ's instruction and commission. But let's not sleep on the introduction here. Verses 1 through 4, where we're first introduced to the first missionaries, the 12, this special group with a lot of significance in the history of the church. Simple enough for our time this morning. We're just going to walk through these verses, see what we can glean from this briefest of biographies of the first missionaries, the 12. And starting in verse 1, I want to point out their mercy and credentials. A pair of points. Their mercy and credentials. Going back to verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now this verse does not represent the initial calling of the 12. Matthew leaves that out. That's already happened. Jesus, he had more than 12 disciples. And according to Luke 6, this was a little bit before the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us that after an, an all-nighter of prayer, he went up on the mountain alone. He prayed the whole night, beseeching the Lord for this decision. And thereafter, he called all of his disciples to himself. And from that larger group, he chose 12. 12 amongst the rest to be his closest disciples. And they became known as a formal name as the 12 almost like a band name, the 12. They were granted special access to Jesus that they might receive greater training. And that's because Jesus had big plans for the 12. We can make a couple of points here about the beginning of Christ's commissioning of the 12 from this introductory verse, verse 1. You can see how Christ's commission came with his authority. That word should jump out, you, out at you whenever you see it in Matthew. Verse 1, summoning the 12, Jesus gave them authority. His authority to cast out unclean spirits, authority to heal all manner of sickness. And this is very significant because if you've been with us, I hope you recall that that word, authority, the same Greek word was the theme of Matthew's, uh, Matthew chapters 8 and 9. The whole point of those chapters, Matthew is showing us Jesus is the one, this divine Messiah who comes with God's authority. He wields God's authority in his own person. Matthew showed us that in Matthew 8 and 9 through these nine miraculous accounts. Jesus possesses all authority. But now it's hugely significant that that same authority using the same word is being given to the 12. Jesus has divine authority inherent in himself because he is the divine Messiah, God in flesh. Not so for the 12. They have no inherent authority. But 
as Jesus now is going to send them out on his errand to represent his name and his kingdom. So he equips them with some of his authority, his power. Later in Matthew, it's, it's by that same authority, Jesus, in fact, commissions all of us, the whole church. After the resurrection, it, it's, it's no minor deal that, that closing words of Matthew's gospel are this great commission where Jesus first says, Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me. And by that authority, he sends out all disciples to reach the lost, to make disciples of all the nations. And that does pertain to us. When you think about it, who are we to tell people what to do, to tell people how to live their lives? We have no such authority or right in ourselves. We're not anyone's Lord or master. But as Christians who bear the name of Christ, who is the Lord of Lords, by his word, by his authority, we are indeed called to command all people everywhere to repent and believe in him. That's by his authority. Now, it should be stated, though, that for the 12, their initial authority was greater still, and that it also came with a supernatural power, the power to work signs and wonders. This was part of their unique calling and commission. This brings us to another point here within the commissioning of the 12. Christ's commission came with his mercy and credentials. What I want to point out here, his mercy and credentials. He gave them his authority. To what end? Again, verse 1. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The way this is phrased, it's actually identical in the wording to the summary of Christ's own ministry back in chapter 9, verse 35. If you look back at 935, Christ was teaching, preaching, and doing what? It says, healing every kind of disease and every kind of of sickness, the exact same wording, which is, is showing us clearly, like, what is Jesus now doing with the 12? He's reproducing himself. He's multiplying his witness, his ministry reach through the 12, that more can be, uh, hear the word, and be healed. Now here, I think it's worth repeating the function of the healing and deliverance ministry of Jesus, which is now becoming the healing and deliverance ministry of the twelve. It was one part mercy, right? So their mercy. Just as the Lord saw humanity broken under the curse of sin and sickness, suffering and death, held captive to Satan, he was moved to mercy when he encountered deformed bodies, debilitating diseases, destroyed lives. He knew he could do something about it, and he did. In compassion, he healed and delivered countless people. Now, he might show people, God is not poor in mercy. He is rich in mercy. And, and Jesus showed it. He was moved to compassion. He wants all of his disciples to have that same heart for the suffering. And so this supernatural authority he gives to them is one part mercy, but it's another part credentials. Because you might recall, there's another reason Jesus came working wonders like healing. And it was to provide his calling card as the divine Messiah. As he put on display his divine power and authority, these were signs that the people might listen to him and believe in him. 
Jesus, he did not heal everyone. And as we've said many times, that all the people he healed, they all eventually got sick again and died. His primary purpose was not just to heal. Ultimately, it was to testify of himself so that all these people might receive the greater healing. And the greater healing is what we call salvation, which is not just for the soul. It's for the body and the soul. It starts with new birth, where the soul is made right with God through justification. And it ends with resurrection, new bodies fit for eternity. That is the real good news Jesus came to secure and deliver. And look, it's the same now for these apostles. They are to carry forward the signs of Jesus as they represent Jesus so that people might listen to them and heed their message. Why should we listen to these fishermen? Like, who are these guys? But by the signs, we should listen to what they have to say. And here in Matthew 10, don't think that Jesus is only commissioning the 12 to go out and heal. Their healing ministry is a means to an end. What end? The end that people would listen to what they preach and believe. And well, primarily, we're going to see later in the chapter how this commission is really a commission to go preach the gospel of the kingdom. A preview by way, or a really verse 7 by way of preview. He'll say pretty shortly here, he says, As you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's more to come. But just know that the signs and wonders that the apostles performed, it was meant to authenticate them as coming from the Lord. This was their, their calling card, the credentials. The fact that these sign gifts were meant to be the, the credentials of the apostles, that is the explicit teaching in Scripture on the purpose of the sign gifts. Just listen to Hebrews 2, verses 3 through 4. Speaking of salvation, it says, After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. That's the apostles. God also testifying with them, how? By signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Just as Jesus was attested as coming from God by signs and wonders, so the apostles were attested as coming from Jesus by signs and wonders. This is why in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul calls signs and wonders, he calls them the signs of a true apostle. That's the whole point. And the result, when you see the sign, you'd better listen to them. The signs point to the truthfulness of the gospel message and the messengers. Again, Ephesians 2.20 says that God used these apostles to lay the foundation of the church. That foundation included the written testimony of the Christ, the New Testament. Once that foundation was laid and these authorized representatives and witnesses of the risen Christ passed away, well, so did their authenticating signed gifts, which is why we don't see them in operation today in the church. And to be sure, God still heals people in response to prayer, but the supernatural sign gifts have been fulfilled in their purpose. As for us now, as, as we represent Christ as his disciples, we, we're not apostles, but we are still to carry on his mercy ministry. 
We are to relieve human suffering when and where we can. We are to share that same heart of compassion just for the broken and help people who are suffering. But at the same time, we know all such mercy in the end is for nothing if, if the lost, if their souls are not made right with God. And so in addition, really, the greatest mercy we can show them is, is announcing to them the good news of the kingdom. Now we are to bear message of, the, the, or we are to bear the, the full message of the gospel, a crucified, risen, ascended Savior who can pay for all your sins. And when it comes to our credentials, we actually have now the greatest sign of them all. The scriptures. The Bible is the written and preserved testimony of these apostles. And they were all eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. And you have to understand the Bible, the scriptures. This is where God now has chosen to place his real power. Romans 1.16, the gospel. This is the power of God for salvation. And there's no greater sign than the Bible you're holding. This is God's sign to you. You might wish that you had power to work wonders because then everyone would believe. All your family would believe. You're turning water into wine. They'd all finally believe. But don't forget the lesson Jesus taught in Luke 16.31. That if someone is unwilling to listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Don't sell short the Bible you're holding, which is the testimony of God through his apostles and prophets. It's the power of God for salvation. It's the greatest sign of God. We too, we have no right or authority to tell anyone to do anything with their lives, to believe anything, to to do anything in ourselves. God has that right and authority. His word has that right and authority. And we're now just his messengers. And so you should go forth in boldness, not in self, but in God and his word, as we are to represent this good news. We only have good news to announce that this risen Savior has come. And his word, as it comes from us, will will accomplish his purposes. So may we be faithful to represent it. Now let's carry on in Matthew 10. Verse 1 shows us, of the 12, their mercy, their credentials, a pair of points. Now, verses 2 through 4, another pair, their identity and relationships. Let's look at this. Number two, their identity and relationships. Just get a one verse, quick preview of their mercy mission. After that, Matthew finally devotes some space to introducing us formally to the 12. And you'll notice, though, for the first time, he points out their upgrade from disciples to apostles. Did you catch that? Verse 1, Jesus summons his disciples. Then verse 2 says, the names of the apostles are these. And we alluded to this earlier, but what is the distinction between a disciple and an apostle? The Greek term for disciple comes from the verb to learn. A disciple is a learner, a pupil. And especially in the ancient world, there were those who studied and even memorized their master's teachings. But beyond learning, disciples also made that the teaching of their master, their rule of life, their conduct was ordered around their master. They would imitate him. And as Christians today, all Christians today are disciples of Jesus by definition. 
And we are still meant to learn, to learn from Jesus and to live out his teaching. But not all Christians are apostles. The Greek term for apostle is derived from the verb to send. It means a sent one, someone who is sent. And in a loose sense, it could apply to anyone who is sent on any sort of mission, a delegate, an emissary, a representative. But in the New Testament, this term became a technical term for a group of delegates or representatives, the the twelve. These were men who were personally chosen by Christ and sent out to represent him to the world and the church. Now, formally speaking, their apostleship started after the resurrection. If you had to put a formal beginning on it. What set the apostles apart the most as a distinct group of special representatives, one, they were personally commissioned by Christ, but two, these were all eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And that's a big deal. Jesus commissioned them to bear witness of him as the risen Messiah. This conforms to the requirements of apostleship that we find in Acts chapter 1. Remember, after Judas betrayed, he's out. It's now down to the 11, but they felt compelled to replace him. And they list the requirements. We got to find someone. Two requirements. One, Any replacement had to have been a disciple of Jesus from the beginning, the baptism by John. So he had many, there's, you know, there's a B team. Other guys were in the wings. But most importantly, this replacement had to have personally witnessed the risen Christ, Acts 122. Overall, Mark 3.14 sums up the best. It says this, it says, Jesus appointed 12 so that they would be with him and so that he could send them out to preach. Really get both sides of the coin on that one. They were first their disciples, those who learned. He called them to be with him, that they might learn from him. His teaching, his example, over three years learn from him. Also that they might later become apostles. Like, off you go. Now you're being sent out to represent him. They are to testify of the risen Christ to the nations, and they are to represent Christ to the church. Now, with all this in mind, we can take a brief look at their identity and relationships of the 12 in these verses. Verses 2 through 4, we get a list of the 12. There are four such lists in the New Testament of the 12. You got Matthew 10, you got Mark 3, Luke 6, Acts 1. And you compare those four lists, it's interesting that the 12 disciples appear to be organized in three groups of four. They're like three little teams of four. And the the name order within the group, uh, these three groups changes, but they're consistent. It's always the same four are always lumped together. And they always have the same leader, the same name mentioned first in each group of four. The first foursome, Peter is the leader. The second group of four, Philip is the leader, and the third group of four, James, the son of Alphaeus, appears to be their leader. It very well could be that Jesus further subdivided the 12, truly into three groups of four. Now, for our text, though, Matthew 10, what what stands out more than groupings of four is groupings of two. They're all paired up. You see that? As Jesus prepares to send them out to preach, he does so in pairs. 
This reflects a common Jewish practice that by the mouth of two witnesses, people will hear the good news. And so this most likely explains why the names of the 12 in this passage come as pairs. So these were their ministry partners. At this point, we could probably spend several sermons giving biblical biographies of these 12 apostles. That would be fascinating, but that's not the point here. Matthew mentions them in summary fashion, and we're going to do the same, but I'll, I'll still highlight a few things pertaining to their identity and relationships. So we start with Peter. First up is Peter. Peter is first in every list of the 12, not because he's their pope or master. All the apostles were equal in authority. The Jerusalem Council shows that, but Peter was, in a sense, first among equals, He was used greatly by the Lord in the church. And we're told more about Peter in the New Testament than any other disciple by far. I did a full biography of Peter back when we preached through 1 Peter. For now, I'll just highlight the significance of his name. His name is Simon, but Jesus gave him the name of Peter. Petros in Greek, meaning rock. That name was not so much an indication of who he was at the time, but more an indication of the man he would become. Peter had zeal and passion and true devotion, but he had too much of that confidence in himself. He was proud. But as he was humbled, usually through his own failings, that's when the Lord really transformed him into a rock, an unshakable leader of the early church. His confidence was now in Christ alone. As it pertains to Matthew's gospel, Matthew makes a big deal biggest out of Peter's rock-like confession of Jesus in Matthew 16 as the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's on that confession that Jesus would build his church. Peter is paired with his brother Andrew. They both lived in Bethsaida, later moved to Capernaum, probably to get their fishing business off the ground. That's where these two men were called by Jesus. Both were devout, seeking the Messiah. Both appear to be have been disciples of John the Baptist before following Jesus. But it was Andrew who found Jesus first. And Andrew brought Jesus, or Peter to Jesus. In fact, whenever Andrew shows up in the Gospels, it's always in connection with bringing people to Jesus. Now, rounding out the first four is another pair of brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee. James always comes first, probably because he was the older of the two. But James was also the first of the 12 to be martyr. He did not last long in the early church. He was the first to go. Meanwhile, John was the last and the only of the 12 to not die by martyrdom. This explains why John rose to prominence in the early church and James did not. But together they started as fishermen. Their father Zebedee had a a successful fishing business on the lake in Capernaum. That's where Jesus called them to. These two brothers were eager, enthusiastic, impulsive. Probably why Jesus gave them the shared nickname of Boanerges, which means the sons of thunder. These were the two guys who asked Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven to consume a Samaritan village because they didn't believe in Jesus. Like Peter, their zeal had to be channeled, and it was as they were humbled over time. John in particular, this former son of thunder, would later become known as the Apostle of Love. You just read any of the five 
books John contributed to the New Testament, and you'll know why he was called later the Apostle of Love. Okay, the next group of four, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. And in this list, Philip always comes first. Philip, like Andrew, was also known as a bringer. He's always bringing people to Jesus. He brought Nathaniel to Jesus. Later, he and Andrew brought a group of Greeks to see Jesus. Philip also came from Bethsaida, like Peter and Andrew, and he also was a disciple of John before following Jesus. Philip, he's just just on the outside. He didn't quite make the cut for that inner circle, but he's clearly number five in the list. He always holds that closest position, the most prominent disciple outside that top four, Philip. Philip is often paired with Bartholomew, and in case you didn't know, it's the same guy as Nathaniel. It's the same person with two names. Philip, or I'm sorry, Bartholomew is the same as Nathaniel. Seems like everyone back then had two names, an ethnic name, a Greek name. Bartholomew is an Aramaic name, meaning son of Tolmai. He came from Cana. He's most remembered for Christ's own tribute to him, where he said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, John 147. We have Abraham Lincoln. He's honest Abe. This is honest Bart. <laughs> While Philip and Bartholomew are often paired together, so are Thomas and Matthew. Thomas doesn't get any screen time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, he doesn't even show up. And John, he's all over the place. He was a man of courage. He was prepared to go with Jesus to death in John eleven sixteen. But that really gets overshadowed by his doubting behavior near the end. You, have, you all know his nickname, Doubting Thomas. He refused to believe that Jesus had physically risen from the dead because he wasn't there at Christ's first appearance to the disciples. But when Jesus later, though, showed up to him in person, he, of course, believed. But it's from Thomas we actually get one of the greatest confessions of Christ, actually the climax of John's gospel, where from Thomas he says of Jesus, John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. Tradition says Thomas later took the gospel to India and was martyred there. As for his pair, Matthew, we already did a a full biography of Matthew back in chapter 9 where we saw Matthew's own call and conversion, this tax collector turned disciple. There was no one more despised by the Jews than tax collectors, their fellow Jews who were traitors by serving Rome. But Jesus called and repurposed him. The fact that Matthew is writing this, and yet he identifies himself as Matthew, the tax collector. The other gospel writers, they don't mention that. That goes to show you that Matthew did not want his past forgotten. Because I I think he knew that that just only gives greater glory to the God who saved him, changed him, called him from being this tax collector. Now we get the final four. James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. This this really was the C team. (laughs) This James, he always leads the final four. It's just that we know uh, essentially nothing about him. He's known as the son of Alphaeus. That's pretty much all we know. And he's, he's known as James, son of Alphaeus, simply to distinguish him from the other James, who is more prominent. I think we can say all the apostles were the Lord's servants, And in God's providence, some gained more notoriety than others. But I think it's safe to assume they are all happy just living 
to the glory of Christ and serving him. Whether their name became known or not, that's not the point. I trust they knew that. <clears throat> the same goes for Thaddeus. In all the Gospels, <clears throat> he only gets one line. John 14, 22, he's just recorded asking Jesus a question. That's it. His Jewish name was Judas. So he also has two names, Judas. You'll see him elsewhere referred to as Judas, son of James. Like, it's not confusing enough. He's Judas, son of James. But he was called that, again, simply to distinguish him from the other Judas. I'm pretty sure after the cross, though, he probably started going by Thaddeus full time. Because no one wants to be known as Judas after Judas Iscariot. But before that final Judas, there's one more guy, Simon. So here we go, another Simon. Again, we know little about him, but everyone associates the name Simon with, with the main guy, Simon Peter. And so he's stuck being known as Simon the Zealot, just to distinguish him from the other Simon. It says here, actually in verse 4, Simon uh, literally says the Canaanian. That does not come from the word Canaanite. This was a Jew. Rather, Canaanian was an Aramaic word for zealot. The zealots were a small party of fiercely nationalistic Jews known for their extreme hatred of foreign rule. But we, don't, we know nothing, of, or nothing more of a, his background or his call. Now, at this point, you go through a list. You'd normally say something like last but not least. Here, I think it's appropriate to say last and least. Judas Iscariot. Iscariot probably referring to a place name, a town in Judah. But while Peter is first in every list, Judas is last in every list. I wonder why. But Judas, he's actually the second most referenced disciple amongst the 12. We know quite a bit about him. We'll save his biography for some other time. But like Simon, who had a name Peter, Judas had his own nickname, except that Jesus did not give it to him. Judas earned his nickname by his behavior. He's known as Judas the Betrayer. Where for betrayal literally means to hand over, and that is what he did to Jesus. In the end, he handed him over to the Roman authorities. He took his charades so far that he betrayed Jesus with a kiss, the audacity of that betrayal. And Judas really gives us the greatest pattern of a false believer. And he received an external call to follow Jesus, but never an internal call. This was no surprise to Jesus, though. He said he knew who would betray him from the beginning. Jesus knew this was all part of God's predetermined plan, Luke twenty-two twenty-two. Still, Judas is responsible for his choices. He will be judged as such, and he's remembered now as the betrayer. Much more could be said about Judas, the, the archetype of the false believer, but that's not the point right now, so we'll save that for another time. Merely, you put all this together, we have this, this first introductory list, this introduction to this special group of apostles known as the Twelve. Now, from the words of Jesus in verse 5 and the remaining of the chapter, that's where we get some choice meat, some really rich instruction that's still so applicable to the church and its mission today. There's a lot more to come on discipleship. But I still think there are worthwhile lessons to glean from just this introduction to the 12 that certainly relate to us now. And since our theme is pairs, I want to give you a pair of reflections, you might say. And first, I want to point out the significance concerning those whom Jesus did not choose. Did it, did it stand out to you whose names are not on this list of 12? Who's not represented among the 12? 
The answer is no religious leaders of Israel. Jesus chose no scribes, no Pharisees, no Sadducees, no priests, no rabbis, no religious elite. All of his disciples were more or less peasant Galilean Jews. All of them came from the north. Only one came from Judah in the south. Can you guess? Judas Iscariot. We see in whom Jesus did not choose a rejection of Israel's system and an indictment on Israel's leadership. Their system was bankrupt. Their leaders were corrupt. They're false teachers. And they, did not, they were not fit to lead God's people. And their system could not reconcile people to God. And this is why Jesus sought to dismantle their system. Their law must go. Not the Old Testament, but their false regulations. Their temple must go. Supposed to be a house of prayer. They made it a robber's den. It will be destroyed. Their leaders must go. They were wicked shepherds fleecing the flock. It's time for something new. And so first, there's to be a new covenant. Jesus will inaugurate that new covenant with his blood to form a new people, genuinely saved. Speaking of, there, there is to be a new community, a people of the new covenant. That's the church. There is to be a new testament, a new set of instructions from God, not to replace the old, but to fulfill it and advance it. This is a fuller revelation of the truth of God's grace. Put all this together, you understand why there has to be new leadership to help usher in all these changes. Jesus had a new covenant to announce, a new community to lead, a new testament to write. This is why new leadership was needed for these changes. The old did not suffice. And this is why Jesus chose these 12. They would fill all those functions. And there's a reason he chose 12, not 11, not 13. There's a reason the apostles felt the need to replace Judas to bring their number back up to 12. And that's because this church has the new covenant people of God bears some continuity with Israel as the old covenant people of God. Now keep in mind, similarity does not prove identity that the church is not to be equated with Israel, but the church, this thing called the church is something new. This is a new people of God, a new covenant community of God's people. This is what Paul teaches in Ephesians 3. This, this thing called church is God's mystery. That the Messiah would come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel was no mystery. That even Gentiles would be saved and blessed by the Messiah, that's also no mystery. That, that's in the Old Testament. But that Jew and Gentile would become, Ephesians 3, fellow members in the body of the Messiah, knit together as one new man, the church, that was a mystery, Ephesians 3, 3, 6. And that's what the church is. It's not a nation. It's the redeemed of all the nations, Israel and the rest, together as one new man in Christ, Ephesians 2.15. This church is the household of God, Ephesians 2.19 says. For any house to stand, it needs a, a solid foundation, and Jesus gave that new foundation, Ephesians 2.20, the apostles, Christ being the cornerstone. And that is something we can actually appreciate in our text. Again, we don't worship or venerate the 12, but you should recognize and appreciate their special role in God's plan of this thing we call the church. 
You know, in the throne room vision of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, do you remember who's around the throne worshiping? There's 24 elders. And I don't think it's rocket science to identify who these 24 guys are. I think it has to be the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. That number 24 shows up later in Revelation, Revelation 21. So we're now talking the eternal state where you see this holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. This is the eternal dwelling place of God and his people. And this city, it says, is surrounded by massively high walls, and the walls have 12 gates and 12 foundation stones. Guess whose names are written on the 12 gates? It says the 12 patriarchs of Israel. And guess whose names are written on the 12 foundation stones? It says the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Revelation 21, 14. Even in the eternal state, you don't see the church replacing Israel. You don't see Israel folding into the church. You keep things straight. There is some continuity as ultimately there's only one eternal people of God. It is the church. Yet the church is not a nation. It's the redeemed of all the nations. And the apostles are the foundation of that new people. Now, just as Peter, though, was first among equals. So of all the nations, Israel will be first among equals. That's by God's choice. Their privileged place as a nation remains, not to their glory, not to their boasting, just by God's choice. And although, back to our text, we really see the beginnings of this plan to form this new people, to call them out. That's what church means, the called out ones. Our response, as we just think on that plan, it's the same as Paul in Ephesians 3. After teaching all this, what is his response? It's just to marvel, to to praise God. And glorify God at just the majesty of this mystery, millennia in the making. Like Paul says in Ephesians 3.21, just to him be the glory in the church. You should appreciate what the Lord is doing through this thing called the church, which is perfect in his eyes, imperfect in our implementation. But the Lord loves his church. He died for his church. We should love what he loves and value his church. So really, the first point of significance here comes from those whom Jesus did not choose. The 12 represent the beginning of a new people, us, the church, where Israel's leadership at the time was not going to cut it. Now, there's a second point of significance to draw on here. The first from those whom Jesus did not choose. The second from those whom he did choose. And so you look at this list, just who, who did Jesus choose? The answer is, No one special. He just chose common people. The Pharisees had a a derogatory name for them, Hamaretz. That means the people of the land. These were just the uneducated, common people. Not very religious, didn't keep all the laws. They weren't worthy of that much attention. That's exclusively who Jesus chose, minus Judas. Doesn't that strike you? You think about these guys, you get to them a little bit more, you realize no formal training, No education, no degrees, no experience. They're not nobles, not rich, not skilled. To the contrary, they display great lapses in judgment, fear. They argued, they made mistakes, they were prideful, they were selfish, they were slow learners. Like you walk into a Catholic church today, you'll see these 12 men essentially worshiped in stained glass windows as holy saints next to the Lord. But I'm pretty sure when Jesus called them, they were sinners. And even after he called them, they were still sinners. And technically, that's all Jesus had to choose from. But unlike the religious leaders, 
what made these disciples different is they, they knew they were sinners. Like Peter says to Jesus, just get away from me. I'm an unworthy man and I shouldn't be with you. But he called them nonetheless. They saw their sin, their need for a savior. They all came to believe in Jesus as God and Christ, all from the heart, minus Judas. And they were all redeemed. That's what made them truly useful and special to the Lord. Their secret was simply Jesus. He was their secret. It's not about them. It's about him and his power working in them. Remember, after Jesus ascended, we see the apostles. They're before the Sanhedrin. That's the body of Jews who had just killed Jesus. And the Sanhedrin, they were bewildered and amazed. Because they see, it says, these untrained, uneducated fishermen... But here they are, they're speaking with such power and wisdom and knowledge. And they're like, what's going on? How can this be? Then it says in Acts 4, 13, it then says, they recognize them as having been with Jesus. They didn't mean that as a compliment, but that is the greatest compliment. And that's the secret. They were with Jesus. He taught them more than any school ever could. And this is still what marks or should mark our discipleship today, just a distinctive Christ-likeness, a Christ-centeredness. Our lives should be flavored by the, the image of Christ. These 12 provide the pattern of all discipleship, and it shows us God is not looking, as he still calls and chooses, for the elite, for the special, for the best of the best. And before God's eyes, no one is special. None are righteous. None are deserving. Before God, all humanity, we're all like broken clay vessels, not useful for anything but the trash heap. But God is looking for those who recognize this, who see their need, their sin, and who go to him through his son. Those are the ones who find his salvation. The same is true for all disciples today. God calls you to this gift of salvation in Christ as you respond, like he knows your faults and your failures. I hope you don't have the mistaken notion that you've got to shape yourself up and clean up your act before you go to him. Of course, we repent when we believe, but the point is none are acceptable on their own. God finds broken vessels and by his grace through their faith, he transforms them into something useful. And that is what he still does. He's the one who gets glory out of us. First Corinthians one twenty six reminds us, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. You should be encouraged by this, by this calling. I would urge all of you here to follow this Jesus. If you're not his disciple, look upon him as Lord, Savior, Master, see the sign of the scriptures you're holding and follow him. And for those who are his disciples, you should know that he deeply loves his disciples. What he said of the 12 is still true. John 13, 1 says he loved them to the uttermost. He still loves his disciples. He's patient with his disciples. And you know, he's praying for his disciples. John 17 proves that the first and even all future disciples, the Savior is interceding for you. Just just think about that. He's praying for you. Let this spur you on to endurance, to service. You may not be among the 12. 
Your name may not be on a foundation stone, but if you're in Christ, your name is still written in the book of life of the Lamb, Revelation 21, 17. So take heart. And like the apostles, come now just to find great confidence to serve him, not in yourself, but in God, in Christ, in his word. You're not sufficient to save yourself or even to serve him, but he makes you sufficient for both by grace. So let us, therefore, serve him. We do so without any boasting. Even the 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne. We'll we'll do the same. We don't take any credit. But as we reflect on all this, we should give great thanks. We should worship deeply from the heart. And we should now serve. We should be those who are not merely hearers of the word, but doers also ready to serve and give our lives to the Savior who gave his for ours. Let's make that our resolve. Let us pray. Our precious Savior, we thank you for your word, which is true. It pierces us and instructs us. We need as well. We are slow to learn, just like the original 12. We stumble. We are full of imperfections. Yet, as we grow and are saved and work unto your glory, you will get the glory, for it's just the Spirit's working in our behalf. Still, we're fine with that. We're happy to represent you to the nations. We need you to continue to work in us. I pray you move in this local church, this this mere local expression of the one body and bride of Christ to sanctify us, to make us all more like Christ. Let the world see in us him, that our lives are just flavored by our Savior, that the world might know we've been with him. And may we take up our commission to take his gospel and the written scriptures, the testimony of his resurrection to the nations, to our loved ones, to the world. Empower us for this work. May we not be idle or merely hearers, but now doers of this precious word. Thank you for calling us, making us disciples. We, we do cast our crowns. We do give you all the glory for that and sanctify our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.